0: G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is the Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. Seven Nightly News presents
1: the Fitzgerald Inquiry Report. It's been a remarkable day for Queensland, with the long-awaited release of the Fitzgerald Inquiry report. It recommended the corruption watchdog and widespread political reform. But what did Sir Joe know? Police Commissioner Terry Lewis and his officers would do anything to subdue
0: critics of Joe. To ensure that sort of service from the police, he was prepared to turn a fairly blind eye to whatever else they might be up to. If this government was serious about tackling corruption, we'd have a national, Anti-Corruption Commission, a national ICAC, a national corruption watchdog, like they have in New South Wales. Because this government thinks that the only place that wrongdoing happens is on one side of the fence in the industrial arena. They are kidding themselves. Tony Fitzgerald, ACQC, is a well-known name to many Australians. The Fitzgerald inquiry into corruption in Queensland was a defining moment for the government in that state and, in many ways, for Australia, with state based anti corruption agencies becoming a feature of public administration after this time in several states in New South Wales, Queensland, and Western Australia initially, but more recently in Tasmania, Victoria, and South Australia as well. Separate from the Fitzgerald inquiry, Tony Fitzgerald has had a distinguished judicial career. He was the youngest person appointed a judge of the federal court and was later a judge of the Supreme Courts both of Queensland and of New South Wales. He was chair of the Australian Heritage Commission and the inaugural chancellor of the University of the Sunshine Coast. In retirement from the courts, Tony Fitzgerald continues to care deeply about the state of governance in Australia, and naturally, his occasional public comments on the use and misuse of power are sometimes controversial. In one scathing statement about a state government in 2014, he said, unless there is effective parliamentary opposition to advocate alternative policies, criticise government errors, denounce excesses of power and reflect, inform and influence public opinion, the checks and balances needed for parliamentary democracy are entirely missing. Tony Fitzgerald has recently devised what we can call the Fitzgerald Principles some key principles for good government in the 21st century, which we'll discuss today, along with the idea of an anti-corruption commission, not just for states, but for the Commonwealth Government of Australia. Tony Fitzgerald, welcome to The Policy Shop.
1: Thank you very much, Glenn. It's a great pleasure to be
0: speaking with you. Tony, you're clearly deeply concerned about the way Australian parliamentary democracy works or fails to work. And I'd like to start at the beginning, given that we will have many students and potentially first-year politics students listening. How would you characterize the form of government we have in Australia?
1: Well, Lynn, I think it's well known that Australia is a representative democracy. When the Commonwealth was established by an act of the British Parliament in 1901, Australia was given a constitution based on the Westminster system of parliamentary or responsible government. Mm -hmm. Under the Westminster system, parliament is supreme. Those elected are not required to act in the public interest or tell the truth or forbidden to act in their own interests and the interests of their supporters. Everything is left to conscience. I think a lot of people believe that the courts are an effective control on political excess. Indeed. But, but with parliamentary supremacy, that's not the case. Australian courts have power to enforce the Constitution's division of power between the Commonwealth and the states, but the core principle of the Westminster system, parliamentary supremacy, means that laws made by Parliament cannot be questioned on any other basis. Unjust laws are valid. With minor exceptions, courts can only protect individuals or minority rights when permitted to do so by Parliament, which can effectively oblige the judiciary to be complicit in injustice.
0: So how complicit? How is it that the judiciary can't
1: challenge an unjust law? It's simply the core at the very heart of the Westminster system of parliamentary supremacy. And we saw a very clear example of it in South Africa, which has or had a similar system. South African judges were required to enforce apartheid, a truly terrible injustice. And I suppose one could look at the refugee laws and wonder whether they are really just. Or in my case, I'm convinced that they're not, that the courts are required to enforce them. So
0: how did we end up with this system of government and these sets of values?
1: Democracy was first, as I understand it, experimented with in some of the city-states of Greece in the period before Christ, hundreds of years before Mm. Christ. And in in India before that. And in India before that. And it then vanished, at least so far as uh, Western nations are concerned, until the 17th and 18th centuries. Thomas Paine, who participated in both the American and French uh, revolutions, which occurred, as you know better than me, in the second half of the 18th century, pointed out in his seminal work Rights of Man in 1791 that parliamentary supremacy might result in a new tyranny in which the majority oppressed individuals and minorities. There's an echo of that in Lord Acton's famous statement that power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it was Lord Acton who also pointed out, although it's less well known, that even the majority can't make just that which is unjust. In any event, the historical development in England, the transition from royal power to parliamentary government, proceeded without a formal constitution on the very English assumption, as I understand it, that political office would be exercised by people who knew how to behave properly and could be trusted to do so. That's right, a government of chaps. A um, so government as, of chaps, <laughs> because that was the system at the
0: time. As at March this year, there were over 15.8 million Australians enrolled to vote at elections, um, but you're telling us something important here about what voting means, that the idea that the majority of citizens having a say in government isn't necessarily the reality. Again, how do we end up with this circumstance?
1: Well, it's a little difficult to understand, I suppose, except that these things developed in England. They developed in a society that was divided into deeply entrenched classes Mm. uh, where there was no concept really of individual and minority rights for the lower classes, the middle classes, I suppose, and even the right to vote, now regarded as a fundamental element of democracy, was very limited. The Second Reform Act uh, in 1867 extended the voting population, but uh, even then there was only about one-third of the adult male population had a right to vote, and although Queen Victoria was on the throne, Females did not have a right to vote. The view that was expressed at that time by Walter Badgett, the British economist and journalist who was the author of a major work on the English constitution and the Westminster system, was that the masses of Englishmen were not fit to vote. They had nothing to public opinion and, uh, as it were, as you you said a moment ago, we'll get on with the chaps.
0: And. As you've uh, written about this and thought about it, you've uh, focused often on the role of political parties um, and the separation in a sense from the idea of representation because political parties have a, a strong say or even a dominant say in what it is representatives do and you see ethical considerations as very much at the fore here, how do we end up with political parties in such a dominant position?
1: If we go back to the basis on which this has really started to emerge and has emerged as the Westminster system, we have this doctrine of parliamentary supremacy underpinned by a fundamental assumption based on the perceptions of the time that those elected would voluntarily act with integrity, make decisions for the public benefit, and as it was put by Professor Julius Stone in his Social Dimensions of Law and Justice, exercise power subject to the restraints of shared socio-ethical conventions. In other words, act ethically. And parties were really seen as consistent with that, and, and in theory they are. There was some very sound thinking behind it, although it, it, it hasn't stood the test of time. It's proved too optimistic, but it had a substantial foundation. It's in everyone's rational self-interest to follow common-sense ethical rules. And so we have these people who are assumed, who it's assumed are going to act ethically, and we have them in groups. But we now know, uh, in our rather more cynical times, that not everyone acts ethically that contrary to what was assumed of the people who were expected to exercise elected office, we have ambitious people and we have uh, very excessively ambitious people, people obsessed with power and money.
0: You followed this on in a couple of writings uh, about thinking about group dynamics and uh, indeed about mobs and the influence on politics of mobs but also within parliament of what happens when
1: parties spend a lot of time together. It's much easier... To persuade oneself that one's acting for the best, even though acting improperly, if one is acting as a member of the group and the group is doing that. I'm not a psychologist, but, uh, but there is, as I understand it, a lot of writing about group psychology and how within the group it's much easier to subordinate one's personal values to the group behavior. And you mentioned mobs. Well, mobs are a very good example of it, except I suppose a a rather extreme one. We've seen it over the centuries with pogroms and witch hunts and and lynch mobs and so on and so forth. People subjugate their own personal values and participate. We still see it today. uh, In my view, we see it when there's a scapegoat targeted uh, often these days by the media Someone who's unpopular, perhaps deservedly so, someone who's perhaps connected to an institution which has behaved badly. The sense that there needs to be someone made to pay, and whether the scapegoat is the person who's guilty or not, a, we, we get this group lust to see someone, almost anyone,
0: punished. So I'd like to follow that through by thinking about threats to democracy, to contemporary democracy. You've indicated a concern about the way parliamentarians operate unconstrained and you've expressed views about political parties and indeed about mobs as they operate. We're also in a world of 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 quite rapid change, a world where arguments about national security and technological change justifies or is used to justify uh, various actions. Are you confident that our current system of government can remain both democratic and ethical against these constraints?
1: I think there will need to be a huge shift in political behaviour. Democracy in Australia has largely been reduced to a contest between the Coalition and the Labour Party. They dominate public discussion and debate and elections are heavily weighted in their favour. Legislation which they enacted provides public funding based on past election results and gives them an overwhelming electoral advantage over other parties and independent candidates because they always receive the most money from the past election. And do you think the system can endure? Well, I don't think it can endure, and if we have a look at the way they're behaving, uh, I don't think it can endure unless there's an enormous change in, in, in their approach to this exercise of power. And they don't seem very interested in changing. It was after the Whitlam government was dismissed by the Governor-General at the instance of the coalition. Since then, we've had, once this started, we've had a powerful, professional, political caste, which with organised sectional interests and wealthy individuals have greatly increased their influence. And ordinary citizens have been reduced to an insignificant, unproductive role. Despite the arranged photo opportunities and infrequent, well, well-publicised trips on public transport, politicians are now very remote from the community. One minister recently said that she can see everyone one in Australia whom she wants to see at exclusive functions. That's <laughs> slightly disturbing, isn't it? So how would you sum up the, uh, the state of health of democracy in Australia? What's happened is that in this, in this post-dismissal period, Perhaps only halfway through it, but somewhere between the dismissal and now, there's been a new political dogma accepted by the dominant political parties. It's really been turned into a parody of democracy. And
0: in that parody, you've talked at length in the past about executive excess,
1: the role of the executive within the parliament. Can I ask
0: you to reflect on its contemporary role? The
1: Westminster system's fundamental doctrine of parliamentary supremacy has effectively been reduced to a sham. Parliament's role, authority and prestige are now severely diminished. Responsible government means in this context that the executive government is responsible to the parliament, that party rules and discipline oblige parliamentarians whose pre-selection is commonly held at the whim of the party leadership to rubber stamp decisions made by the executive. I call it a sham because there is an appearance of Parliament making the decisions, and formally it does, but it makes the decisions in accordance with the dictates of the party leadership. It's not really the parliamentarians, the common herd of parliamentarians, the backbenchers, making independent decisions according to their consciences and assessment of what's in the public interest. It's doing what the party leaders do think is best to give effect to their concern and that power is retained. And one of the aspects
0: of that, again, that you've talked about is uh, lies and falsehoods and spin, the role of distorting truth in order to establish a case. I'm wondering if you could reflect on its role, spin's role, in contemporary politics.
1: If we look at business by way of comparison, Misleading and deceptive business conduct is prohibited by legislation, the Trade Practices Act. Misleading and deceptive political conduct is not only legal but regarded by some politicians as extraordinarily clever. People who wouldn't dream of stealing money seem to think nothing of it properly obtaining or retaining power. Uh, important information is withheld and distorted and manipulated and falsehood and propaganda are euphemistically misdescribed as spin. It's almost impossible for voters to distinguish information and rational opinion from nonsense and lies. Public dissent and criticism are discouraged by personal abuse, often levelled under parliamentary privilege, and unwelcome ideas are condemned as elitist or un-Australian. Some politicians and shock jocks and vitriolic quasi-intellectual commentators, bullies with public platforms, hate speech is synonymous with free speech, not a blatant abuse of the right of free speech.
0: So one of the consequences people are deeply concerned about is the loss of trust that follows not only in politicians but in lots of institutions and indeed the constant undermining of trust by the mechanisms you've just discussed. How serious is this problem and what are its implications for parliamentary
1: democracy? Well, it's difficult not to think that they're extremely serious when one of the former ministers, highly respected in his time, John Faulkner, described Australian democracy as drowning in distrust. There's massive public anger and contempt towards politicians and political chaos seems almost inevitable. If politicians persist in their whatever-it-takes behaviour, I only scratch the surface of it, Glenn, uh, by talking about the, uh, the truth issues. But public funds are routinely misspent for political benefit. The scandals are frequent and uh, politicians regularly attribute misconduct to each other, accuse each other of egregious character flaws and assert in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary that only their opponents acting properly, patently disgraceful conduct, too often involving the misuse of public money, is routinely covered up, denied, even by those who aren't directly involved, or excused as within the rules, which merely means that the conduct's not illegal because of uh, self-indulgent rules with which the politicians themselves have determined. It seems, in a sense, surprising that any group of people, including some who are highly intelligent, could come up with such stupidity and think that it was an effective way of making government work and that it would not provoke a backlash. It
0: certainly has. And I'd like now to turn to some of the solutions that you've explored in the past and then turn to the Fitzgerald principles, starting with the solutions that you've been closely associated with in the past. Uh, of course, a national anti-corruption body is one way of addressing some of the lapses and absences that you identify in our constitutional framework. Can you say something about why you advocate a national anti-corruption body?
1: Well, it's it's presented sometimes as though we have checks and balances, but, but the real core principle is parliamentary supremacy. We talked about that earlier constitutional checks and balances to control political power would provide the orthodox answer to the problems we're experiencing. But they're not a panacea. We can see that because in America they have constitutional checks and balances and no one could say that their democracy isn't in serious trouble at the moment. We're unlikely to get constitutional checks and balances. In fact, it's, it's not even really worth talking about because Section 128 of the Constitution makes change so difficult and because the dominant political parties can refuse to have the questions even put to the people. So an effective anti-corruption body, plus I would say an independent parliamentary ethics and privileges commissioner with investigative powers and a multi-party parliamentary committee with power to impose penalties for breach, would be a significant step forward. The Anti-Corruption Commission doesn't fully replace the absence of checks and balances, but it does introduce a constraint. And yet, haven't we
0: seen anti-corruption bodies compromised in some places? You have deep experience of this as a close observer of the role of the anti-corruption institutions across a number of states. Of course,
1: and we're, we're speaking about people who don't want their behaviour to be effectively supervised, resisting it until they can't resist it any further, and then, when forced to act, making it as ineffective as possible. So we have independent anti-corruption bodies. Those commissions, New South Wales and Queensland anyway, have been effectively undermined. The powers that they started off with have gradually, or not gradually, but incrementally been reduced. They've been too successful at their task, and so they've been reduced in power and made less effective. The more recent bodies, the more recent de- commissions against corruption, have been given inadequate powers from the outset. No doubt if, if there's a Commonwealth one, the tendency will be to make it an ineffective body.
0: And yet a newspaper article in January said that according to an opinion poll commissioned by the Australia Institute, more than 80% of people are in favour of a federal anti-corruption
1: body with such apparently massive support for the idea.
0: Why hasn't it
1: happened? Well, because 80% of people are subject to the whims of the dominant political parties and in practice it will always be one of them in power. While the situation remains unchanged. Neither of them want an effective anti-corruption body. Remember that it's only members of parliament, for the most part, who get caught up in corruption activities. There's much less chance to be corrupt in opposition or as a member of a minor party than there is as a minister of the crown or a member of of a governing party. So make me pure, but not just yet. (laughs) (laughs) or or, or make the other side pure and leave me alone for goodness sake.
0: (laughs) So in Queensland, this was made possible by extraordinary circumstances and national media attention on on corruption. It 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 was. Does it take that every time to break through, or can you see other circumstances in which governments might be, however reluctantly,
1: willing to allow this form of scrutiny? Well, I think governments have accepted it to some extent, for example, with ICAC, uh, when it was set up, they've come to regret it to some extent, governments since then, and I suppose you could say that about some of the other anti-corruption commissions, although as I say, they're often set up to fail. And then they do more harm than good because the media and the public are satisfied that an effective... Uh, remedies being put in place, but in fact it's really just a disguise spread across the top to make people feel more comfortable about it. In Queensland, the particular thing about it was that the government appointed the inquiry to investigate the police, but reluctantly expanded to include its own behaviour. And I think there, was, there were some extraordinarily fortuitous circumstances. The planets all aligned. Queensland had uh, a deputy premier who was, who was also the police minister who was deeply affronted at what the police had done to deceive him. And the leader of the opposition and the leader of the Liberal Party, because there wasn't a coalition in Queensland at the time, were both lawyers and extraordinarily decent people. Wayne Goss, who subsequently became the premier, is of course, one of the finest people that, in my view, Queensland's ever produced. And uh, Angus Innes had been at the bar with me for many years and was also a man of absolutely impeccable character and reputation. And the three of them really got together and made a decision, I think. And then Micah Mike, Mike Hearn, in due course, joined the, joined the group that, irrespective of the pain
0: was now and ever. It's just worrying that it requires an alignment of such people and such circumstances. Tony, you signalled very clearly uh, that we need a large change in political behaviour, in your view, and I'm interested about the efficacy of prosecutions. Of course, the Fitzgerald inquiry in Queensland was followed by a very significant set of prosecutions that v- fundamentally changed the political culture in that state. But is that a necessary part of seeing the changes that you're looking for in public behaviour?
1: Lynn, I think there are, there's a need for a number of uh, factors to, and activities to intersect. Uh, in particular, I think a change of political culture needs two things. One, it needs those politicians who aren't engaged in personal corruption, and that's, I'm sure, most of them, to recognise that in their political activities... They need to behave with the same standards of propriety as ordinary people bring to their ordinary lives, that politics is not an area outside the necessities of social and civilised conduct. And the second thing is that there are those politicians, as there are uh, people in other segments of the community, who are corrupt. And the best way to deal with them is to have a body which can expose their conduct and then have them prosecuted by the ordinary authorities through the courts in the criminal justice system. I'm strongly of the view that the New South Wales practice of declaring conduct corrupt is misplaced. In my view, that is a role for the courts, for juries in serious criminal matter to determine. The importance of the the corruption commissions is that they have a much greater capacity to expose misconduct and inform the public, leaving it then to the ordinary resources to ca- carry out the prosecutions. The idea that uh, there is a problem with having these hearings in public because they embarrass people is nonsense. The public is entitled to know what is being done by their representatives, whether they're public servants or politicians, especially when public money is involved. Courts investigate people's behaviour constantly, and they do it openly. The public has a right to know what is happening in public life.
0: Well, Tony Fitzgerald, QC, to, to close, I'd like to ask you about what values and reforms you think are required to ensure that we are a democratic nation?
1: Well, I think we have to start with the Anti-Corruption Commission and the other bodies that I mentioned. But the only long-term solution is a change of political culture. And that's where the questions that have been asked of the parliamentarians are, in, in my view, of seminal importance. There are seven principles that the Australia Institute has on its website, which the Commonwealth parliamentarians have all been asked to say whether they agree or not. This followed up the activity early in the year where members of the government, one might think with a remarkable lack of personal insight, initiated a debate on Australian values uh, and embarked on a crusade to enforce their idea of what other people should do. So the Australia Institute asked all Commonwealth parliamentarians these seven simple questions about their own values, their own ethical values. Some vented their anger, affronted that they should be asked. Most refused or failed to respond, in effect telling the public that they'll act as they they wish and there's nothing voters can do about it. And one of the dominant parties even organised a specious common excuse which most of its members put forward, uh, something about uh, I don't respond to surveys. Not much of an explanation or excuse one would think for refusing to say whether you think you've got an obligation to act ethically, but there it was. Sooner or later, if people, and not just individuals like myself, but the public, wanting a change in political behaviour, insist that their parliamentarians answer the questions they've been asked or some similar questions, there's no particular value in these questions which are badly Uh, named as the Fitzgerald principles, Uh, they are to me simply the common principles that ordinary people live their lives by and uh, teach their children. But the practical outcome will be if the politicians are forced to answer this and then when they fail to live up to them are challenged with the basis that they've committed to these principles and if people stop voting for them, for the people who refuse to commit or say they'll commit and refuse to comply, We'll see a change in political behaviour.
0: It's been my honour to talk today with a great Australian who's devoted his professional life over decades to the issue of ethics in public life. Tony Fitzgerald, QCAC, thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you very much, Glenn. It's been a, a wonderful experience. And thank you for joining The Policy Shop.
0: more about the Fitzgerald principles and the value survey on MPs, go to the Australian Institute website at tai.org.au. This episode of The Policy Shop was produced by Paul Gray, with research by Ruby Schwartz and audio engineering by Gavin Nabar. The series producer of The Policy Shop is Owen Hahasi. Copyright, the University of Melbourne, 2017.